Hey, Rose, do you ever call up Royally Obsessed on Alexa? It's one of the easiest ways to listen to the pod. You can hear our latest episode every week there, thanks to Amazon Music, which has a full catalog of podcasts, including Royally Obsessed. All you have to do is say, Alexa, play Royally Obsessed on Amazon Music. Oh, no, mine is listening to me say that right at this moment. <laughs> a royal reminder, new episodes drop every Thursday. Tune in on Amazon Music. Now on to the show. Please rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Three cheers for His Majesty the King. All right, Rachel, I'm going to hit the ground running. Welcome back to Royally Obsessed. I'm Roberta. And I'm Rachel. Follow us on Instagram if you haven't already at Royally Obsessed Podcast. Email us info at gallerypodcast.com. A quick housekeeping note that our shop is going to be offline for a couple weeks for logistical reasons. Nothing to worry about. So if you want your sweatshirt or tote, you can grab that. In a couple of weeks, it'll be back online. It's offline. So if you're looking for it, just know that. Rachel, I also have to tell you really quickly, it's our 150th episode together. What? Oh my gosh. Can we skip to the royal refreshment? How exciting. Let's just get into it. No, no, no. Tell us what we're talking about first. Okay, okay. Let me set us up. We are very, very pleased to welcome special guest Clive Irving to the podcast. He's the author of The Last Queen and a columnist for The Daily Beast, and he's going to be reflecting on what would have been 71 years of Her Majesty's reign on the throne, talking more about shaping us a bit more from Kate on that. We're going to be reflecting on that campaign. We have Kate's new hire, a lot of new hires going on for the Waleses, a coronation playlist, and so much more. But of course, like you said, we need to cheers to 150th episode together. And now it's time for the weekly royal cocktail. Let me crack my... uh... Let me open this up right now. And Can I tell honor. you I bought this 10 minutes ago? I love New York City. I ran to a bodega. <laughs> they were so like, why are you, you buying a beer at noon? <laughs> In honor of Super Bowl Sunday, we're cheersing with Yingling, of course, for the birds. Go Eagles. We're so excited. It smells about the Super Bowl. delicious actually right now. Cheers. I put mine in a mason jar, which is very That's so not fancy. Sporty. <laughs> Feels royal though. That's appropriate. I'm just right out of the out of the I was going to say the jar. Out of the bottle. I, no, I love bottle. drinking out of the bottle. I clearly I drink a lot of beer. Mm. <laughs> oh, good. I just sloshed it all over myself. Good, good, good. Um, Perfect. This is a big weekend, though, as I dry myself off, um, because it's also Valentine's Day on Tuesday. I don't know if you guys have figured out your plans yet. Oh, gosh, no. 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 But I did sleuth out some cute cards that were Tom Cruise related on Etsy, and I oh. think that's kind of hilarious for long-term listeners. You know, my spouse loves Tom Cruise, and we recently rewatched <laughs> Top Gun, just casual, and so I thought that would be a really fun... What's the pun on the card? It's, you, know? um, you take my breath away. I have a cold still, so, you know, I just botched that, but that isn't that good. the song from the first one? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Oh, my What about gosh. you and Dave? What I about you and Dave? We're doing, I think, um, a place in Philly called Royal Izakaya. We're going to – it's no reservations. But not so try. on Valentine's. That's not your on secret Valentine's trick. Day. We're going to – well, it's no reservations, so we do have oh. to do a walk-in. So we're going <laughs> okay. this week to kind of, like, beat the rush. But hopefully, fingers crossed, like, please send all your good vibes that we get in because you it will. is, like, a hot, hot place. Um, Cupid also, on your side. Yeah. Reminder, too, that if you guys want to send a bouquet to someone, you want to drop a hint to someone, you would love a bouquet. You can get 20% off at Farm Girl Flowers with the code OBSESSED20. We really hope you guys are using that code to either send like Galentine's or I want to send my mom a bouquet. So Or send something to yourself. I am so here for that. Of course. Of course. 
All right, our listener email real quick from Valerie in Lancaster County, PA. She said the podcast is sunshine and joy. And I paraphrased a little bit, but she writes, I wanted to address one of your lows from this week's episode about Diana's letters being auctioned off. She said it does feel like a low, especially given all the conversation about privacy, but she wants to offer another perspective. Valerie writes, as someone who works in historical research, these types of documents are essential to have as time goes on. We all know how unreliable news stories can be these days, unless you're dealing with deep investigative journalism. Having first-person accounts is vital to get to the bottom of the real story, not in the spirit of gossip, but in the service of historical record. She says, she goes on to say, while it does feel like an invasion of privacy, and I acknowledge that, it's also part of how we obtain accurate information about what happened in the past. Think of all the personal letters we have from the days of Alexander Hamilton, and also what was lost because lies burned her correspondence, understandably so. Really, we only have one side of the story. And she ends it with, they live, they died, and we get to tell their story. Having documents like these letters helps us to tell a more accurate story. I love oh the God. Hamilton reference. The Hamilton reference. I listen to that exact song from that soundtrack all the time on the subway. It just like gets me all psyched up. And, and Does this feeling- make you reevaluate your stance from last week? I do. I mean, I think it is really true. Diana is very much a part of the historical record, history, the monarchy. We need to recognize that. I think it's probably just like the spare whiplash of it all. There's just a lot of drama and wounds being dredged up in the last four to six weeks. It's mid-Feb already. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, this is a really, really valuable perspective and insight. Thank you for yeah, writing us. Astute observation. And Valerie, I just want to add one more thing. She writes that one way to remedy this, why it how it feels like an invasion of privacy would be like a statute of limitations or how the U.S. handles classified documents or how the royal family locks things down for 90 years, which seems really excessive. But that's a good point. One one mm. way to kind of mitigate that feeling of ickiness from the privacy of it all. All right. Yeah. Rachel, history. What are we royal talking history. about? Royal history. This week in royal history. Happy birthday, August Philip Hawk Brooksbank. He's turning two on February 9th, the day this episode drops. All I can think, Roberta, is where he was for his last birthday, living life large in Montecito with his mama and uncle. Or is it an uncle? Is Harry's uncle? It would be his What is it? Cousin once removed? Oh, yeah, yeah. It would be his cousin once removed. But at the Super Bowl. I feel like you call those people uncles, though, I will say. Yeah, I do. I do. But yeah, yeah. they were at the Super Bowl. So it feels so fitting that that's the same timeline, but also when our mouths dropped to see them out there, Eugenie and Jack. If they pop up at the Super Bowl again with Harry and Meghan, I would lose it. That would be incredible. I know. Also, baby number two is on the way this spring. That's so exciting. So exciting. I thought it was this summer. I think it's oh, later it this, this summer? summer. Sorry. I think it's later this summer. And I, I did see some headline that was like a rumor, obviously, that Eugenie and Jack might be moving to California. What? That has got to be a That's, rumor. Right? But they're like not wanting to go to Montecino. They want to live in West Hollywood. I, I don't know where that's just it was just funny to me. Um, all right. I'm going to kick off our news section with Kate's continuing campaign shaping up and the new staff changes. So after our last episode dropped, we saw her have a chat with Roman Kemp. She also posted that picture with her and her dad. I mean, Prince Louis. Could I, It had to have been Uncanny. a copy and paste of Prince Louis. It is wild. And she also showed up for Children's Mental Health Awareness Week this week. I think we wanted to talk a little bit more about the big picture of shaping up, you know, the awareness aspect. We're us royal watchers critical enough were we too critical of this she's really 
you know, branching out on her own with this. They're saying it's her life's work, this shaping And up something campaign. that will live beyond Kate is her goal, like the Duke of Edinburgh's award and Harry's Invictus Games. This is Kate's intention with that. And I think that's one interesting point to note, like the Duke of Edinburgh award. I immediately thought of the Prince's Trust and how they've really feeling like they've done actionable work. Like we're going to be talking about Charles opening up some of the palaces a little bit later in the episode. But I just feel like that that's something where it's not just awareness, it's really action. And that's where this, it's so hard because the Royals, we historically know they really can't, you know, meddle in anything government related or funding related, but awareness about the early years and their importance feels like we all know it's really important. You know, we already know this. So I think that was one discussion. I think something that is standing out to me as interesting, and I'm curious to see how it unfolds, is we're going to be talking about some key hires that Kate and the Waleses have been making. But with Christian Guy at the helm of the early fives, under fives project, he is someone with a lot of political background and ties. So maybe this is an inroad there. And, you know, the royals, of course, have to tread so carefully with the political aspect of it. And I think that that's where it just comes across as so limited in terms of what they can actually do. Awareness isn't enough, but I'm curious what his work will ultimately turn into. And I will say I loved her chat with Roman Kemp. One, because he is a handsome lad and because (laughs) they shared a cup of tea in this like she shed. Does Kate Middleton have a she shed on her property? Oh my gosh, do you remember she sheds? That was like 2015, huge crusher for us up here. Wow, when we discovered talking about that. How is William just like letting his wife sit in this cute little shed with this handsome man? And I was like, honestly, add some furniture. And it's a setting from that one of my favorite rom-coms, The Holiday. Have you seen The Holiday? Oh my gosh. And also, there's a great holiday reference coming up at the end of the episode. I can't oh, wait. Perfect. Perfect. I can't I wait. Just cued you in. Um, I did want to say, too, though, that it bothered me a little bit because I loved, I loved the idea of sharing a picture of Kate as a baby. And then so many celebrities, UK, US shared and influencers shared their pictures of when they were little. And but why didn't the royal family participate? I wanted to see oh, like Charles call. as a baby or William. Like I just felt like I like mean, William, from the archive, things yeah, we haven't seen, like we did Camilla. With Kate. Like I feel like the participation needs to be within, and it needs to start from within. And I think that's one of my criticisms. I hope that they really take that to heart. I did want to talk about the new hire, like you mentioned, Allison Corfield. Just a quick note that she worked with Jamie Oliver. She helped him with... He has a terrific recipe for stir-fry beyond all his philanthropic initiatives. All I think about Jamie Oliver's stir-fry in my own household. She might have helped with that, but she most recently helmed his campaign to tackle childhood obesity (laughs) and improve the quality of school (laughs) cafeteria lunches. Yeah, Um, But she's also... This is really interesting. I found this fascinating that she had a previous role besides Jamie Oliver at an agency co-founded by director Richard Curtis, who directed Love Actually. This is like the rom-com episode for everyone that wants to. I'm loving it. I'm making my hands as gestures of all the correlations. Can't see that. And uh, she also got her start in her career, professional life, as a flight attendant. Shout out Carol Middleton. And she rose through the ranks of Richard Branson's Virgin Airlines and actually started Virgin Brides, which was a company, an offshoot of Virgin, which helped, I guess, find bridal dresses. It really, it didn't last very long, but it's just Virgin so fascinating. Virgin Brides is not great branding for me. I'm just going to say as a name, no, it's, right? It's a horrible, horrible name. <laughs> um, the one thing we keep hearing is she's a ball breaker. She's a straight talker. Yes. She's passionate, dynamic. She's funny. She makes things happen. She is the total opposite of men in gray suits. And so I am really excited to see what she does here. I've Kate, 
Kate's ball breaker era is beginning. And I don't I don't think I would ever say those words. Yeah, exactly. I also spent some time on Allison's LinkedIn page. Excuse me for doing that. But I did see a lot of her recommendations talked about what a wicked sense of humor she has. So I feel like that also sounds like some good fun. Hopefully. We're going to just do some quick updates because the royal news is all over the map this week, and we just wanted to get some of these mentions in. First and foremost, Portia de Rossi and Ellen DeGeneres renewed their vows. Harry and Meghan were there. What did you make of that, Roberta? I just felt like with all the other celebrities in the room, like what were the conversations? Like Gwyneth Paltrow was also there. Was Meg like shilling, you know, her former TIG days? Like what is the collab going to be? I would love a TIG Goop collab. I know. All I could think was, you know, obviously I am royally obsessed, but I'm also very Jennifer Aniston obsessed. And that was mm. sort of my my mind, my the gears in my brain were turning about that moment Gosh. where Jennifer and Megan are hanging out and well, Courtney Cox Harry? was there. I was going to say Harry and his obsession with friends to have Courtney Cox and Jennifer Aniston in the same room and Rachel and Monica, like he must have lost his mind. Were they laughing about the memoir reference? Like, I feel like it's just so funny, the, the sort of star power in that room. Yeah. All right, next up, the Coronation Playlist. This was exciting to get this reveal, right, Roberta? Uh, we have a brand new spiffed up website that landed on a session day. So I guess that was how they marked it because they were pretty quiet otherwise in terms of honoring Her Majesty's official day on uh, February 6th. But we have the David Bowie, we have the Beatles, we have the Spice Girls, Harry Styles, Queen, and it closes with King by years and years. So... Very exciting lineup, but I couldn't help but compare to the Jubilee playlist, which we used a lot at our Jubilee brunch. And it's similar, but there is no overlap of tunes. Noticeable differences. Yeah. And I did see they got heat for including Dizzy Rascal, who yes. was convicted of domestic assault. So just, uh, yeah, they're, that's a really tricky thing to do is compile playlists. I feel like that used to be my favorite thing to do. So all I could also I, think more was power like, to them. I could also just think the Spice Girls, is that an Easter egg? Is that a hint that they're coming? Ugh. I hope so. I hope I so. Hope. We also got, speaking of the coronation, King Charles, this is my bridging the gap of these random pieces of news, but Prince Charles, oh, I did it again, King Charles hosted Zelensky at Buckingham Palace today, a total surprise. This was not planned. His whole trip to the UK was not planned. He first spoke with Parliament he wore his signature sweatshirt, which is already getting a lot of press. There was a great piece in the New York Times today about how influential it is that Zelensky continues to wear that, where Charles is dressed very, you know, in his typical suit. And Zelensky is really making it clear. You think about a picture being worth a thousand words. War is happening, and that's Zelensky's day-to-day -day versus what's going on everywhere else. Um, but that was really kind of poignant to see, in my opinion. And he really thanked Charles as well for how much when he was Prince of Wales, he lent his support and words around the cause. And then one last update, like I mentioned earlier, King Charles is opening up royal residences for charity. It says that he will fight loneliness and the ongoing cost of living crisis for offering free meals at some of the castles, Castle of May, Dumfries House, and Highgrove. I think this is a great idea. They did some of this during the Jubilee, and I'm glad they're continuing to do it as the cost of living crisis, you know, continues in the UK. All right. Our interview with Clive Irving. Here it is. 
Today, we're joined by Clive Irving, former managing editor of the Sunday Times in London. He's a columnist for the Daily Beast and author of The Last Queen. We wanted Clive on to reflect on what would have been Queen Elizabeth II's 71 years on the throne. So welcome, Clive. Thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure to be here. So before we talk about the Queen, we wanted to jump in and get your thoughts on Spare. It's about, I guess, about four weeks since the the publication date this week. I thought it was an absolutely bonkers book, honestly, um, in a sense that it's about someone who escapes from the asylum and then decides that he wants back in and starts knocking on the door desperately to get readmitted. And uh, it's a curious, unresolvable situation, really, because the basic um, difference between him and his brother, which is at the bottom of all of this, his brother being now the Prince of Wales, William and Kate, obviously, is that William never had any chance of fleeing the, the asylum from basically from birth. He was there was no escape. And living in the royal family, it's a kind of bejeweled penitentiary. Um, it looks opulent. It looks extremely well equipped. It's very ceremonial. But you have very limited choice over what you do from day to day. It's more or less set. Your life is set for you forever, and there's no real personal agency available to anyone in that situation. They they can't suddenly decide to go off and do something else. So you've got to understand the relationship between the two brothers on that basis, that William never had a chance to escape. And obviously, um, it didn't occur to Harry that it would be necessary to escape, in a sense. He thought that he would be like a second fiddle and a support performance and what changed for him was meeting Meghan Markle and meeting someone who was so outside of the system and so different to anyone he'd met before and, and someone who was so compellingly attractive to him that from that moment on, it was going to be whatever happened, whatever unfolded and whatever stories are told, it was going to be something that exaggerated his freedom and the containment of his brother, the, if you like, the impossibility for his brother to escape. So boiling inside of William all the time is a sense of resentment. I think that Harry never understood that difference between them. And he tried to get it across to Harry, but Harry never got it. So now you've got this very sad situation where this cathartic book is written, a strikingly powerful book in many ways, because it describes to us a situation we already knew was bad, but it gives you the detail that was missing before. It gives you the personal emotion. Do you think it spells trouble for the royal family? I don't think that book is is in any way a threat to the royal family. And in, in fact, I think the reverse. I think the book served to cover up what is really a much deeper problem for the royal family, which is that they're increasingly out of sync with what's going on in the country and the mood of the country. And this is, this is a problem for the king because the king is far from established yet. And the ceremony to establish the king, obviously, is the is the coronation that's coming up in, in May. And the danger of the coronation is it will seem like a banquet being performed next to a food bank in that the people of the country are suffering um, from a very severe winter, suffering from very high inflation. There are food banks all over the place. There are constant strikes in the country. And so... The first coronation was in 1953. I, I, I'm old enough to remember it. And in 1953, Britain was so different to the Britain now in every possible way. It was still an imperial power. 
The queen was very young, age 25, and she was very much the apprentice queen, inexperienced. The ceremony was medieval. This is astonishing fact, but it's true that a third of the people believe that the monarch was appointed by God in, in 1953. So there was a sort of, it was uh, an institution presented on television for the first time through the coronation that was essentially a medieval hangover, and it reflected the times. That country no longer exists. And in fact, I, I, it's an interesting thing about the Queen's reign, but in the, in the 70 years that she was on the throne, the country, Britain, United Kingdom, whatever you like to call it, this conglomeration of, of small countries on an offshore island, became a different country in very many good ways. It became multicultural in a way that it never was in 1953. It was happy living in its own skin. The Queen was the second part of an age. The first age began with Churchill during the war, and it could be called the age of heroic survival through the Second World War. Churchill more or less wrote the script for that afterwards, so that as long as he was alive, he was the symbol of that spirit. When Churchill died, there was enormous outpouring, enormous funeral like the one we saw for the for Queen Elizabeth II. When he died, the Queen inherited that the mantle of that age. She continued it in all the ways that she related to her people. She was really a reflection of that period of heroic destiny. And it so happened, I think, that she happened to die at a time when that period was over. Most of her subjects had no living experience of that time. There were very few people left who had a memory or experience of of the early Churchill era. And so history very seldom ends neatly like a bookend. But I think the Queen's death was a bookend. It sort of closed an age. And this this has left Charles, the inheritor, with a huge problem. Part of it is optical, is is what you see. You see a, a fairly old man. In fact, Charles at one point said that no one should be monarch after the age of 70, and he's 73. Um, so he's inherited this huge apparatus of the monarchy, all these palaces on the model that the Queen set for herself, and that couldn't be changed as long as the Queen was alive, because it seemed part of her and she was very, very popular. So Charles is almost standing over the edge of a precipice, looking down to a completely unknown future for both the monarchy and for the country. And this is all sort of coming to a head with the approach of the coronation. And I don't think Charles knows what he's doing, honestly. He hasn't established himself so another important thing to understand about the British monarchy is they can't really do anything without the government saying they can do it. They have a very passive, this is part of the constitution, they have a very passive role. It never seemed to be passive under the Queen because she fitted into it so perfectly and she represented what the government wanted to be represented. The first two things that happened when Charles came to the throne was that he was stopped from going to Egypt to the um, climate change conference because the then extremely brief Prime Minister Liz Truss, who lasted for only 50 days. Climate change wasn't part of her policy, so she didn't want him to go. Mm -hmm. So she stopped him. The second thing that the government did was to tell Charles that the first state reception at Buckingham Palace for a foreign head of state should be the head of South Africa, the president of South Africa. So that was the first state visit on the orders of the, the government. And yet that Prime Minister was embroiled in a scandal about banknotes hidden in a sofa, very bizarre story. But basically, South Africa is not a model of the Commonwealth 
for the Commonwealth to follow. And, and, and the Commonwealth's very important to the Crown, obviously, because the Queen really built the Commonwealth herself. So Charles was faced with giving a state dinner to a somewhat dodgy head of state uh, at a time when everything was very critical for him. So these two things, one being told that you can't do something, one being told that you can do something, illustrate limits on Charles's agency. So how does a, a new king come into a situation where there's such a serious social pressure at the moment? How does he come into this situation and convey that he himself is relevant and understands what's going on, and at the same time convey the impression that the monarchy at that scale, at that size, enormous size, is still relevant? I'll just give you a a single fact that over the last 15 years, the basic disposable income of anyone living in Britain has been basically static, and therefore its value has been eroded by inflation. In the same period, the, the grant of money given to run the monarchy has gone from £30 million to £86 million pounds wow. in that same period. So there's an enormous inequity and disparity between the level of life lived by the king which is, I think, plutocratic. The interesting thing is, use the word plutocratic, because the Queen was a very rich person too, but she never seemed to be a plutocrat. She didn't live like a plutocrat. Whereas Charles lives inside this plutocratic bubble with a big country house, extravagant lifestyle, very petulant behaviour about all the things that he needs every day, from the toothbrush in the morning to the, to the, to the bath at night. Everything is tended with many, with many flunkies. Never got that. See... The other thing about the Queen was that she was completely unknowable, whereas Charles is completely known. We know every sordid detail of his background, the pluses and the minuses. And so the people see that too. I, I don't think anyone in, in Britain at the moment very much notices even the existence of the King because they're too busy getting on with the, dealing with their own lives. And, and the King doesn't, isn't doing anything to make himself relevant to that. Yeah. Well, that's what's so interesting, too, with Charles coming into the throne at this time in his life is that he's had we've had 70 plus years of getting to know him. So it is a very different situation than it was with the Queen. Yeah, very different. Yeah. We want to ask you about the Queen, because as you well know, yesterday marked what would have been her 71st year on the throne. Her father passed away on February 6th, 1952. And, you know, so much has happened in the royal family since last September when she passed. What do you think she would think, the queen would think, if she were alive today of all that's happened since her passing? I don't think it would have been a surprise to her at all. I think she had a very acutely tuned political antennae. And I think that she decided that she was going to die on the job. You know, no one's really registered that clearly, but I think that was what she decided. She was. Going to, she could have abdicated or retired, you know, to give it a contemporary word rather than an ancient word of abdication. She could have easily done that. No one would have thought ill of her for doing it. And I think that she wanted to stay on the throne as long as possible because she thought that Charles was not really up to it and that she didn't want to see that happen. She didn't want to see Charles kind of overwhelmed by it and I think that in her mind she'd already mentally decided that that William and Kate were the future and that Charles was going to be a kind of interim honestly I think and people have said this to me that maybe Charles has thought that himself and his real intention is to stay on the throne for a few years so that he can sort of 
as he sees it in his own mind, tutor William in, into the job. And then that he will then abdicate. He won't hang on until he dies. He'll hand over to them. And I think that's more or less what he's got worked out. How long that would be, I don't know. And I don't think he knows either. But it may be le- far less than he thinks, because if, if he really screws up in the next couple of years and fails to establish himself and fail. Now, another test you see is, is Buckingham Palace is a wonderful symbol of all of this in that it's a massive pile. The inside was like a collapsing Edwardian hotel. The plumbing and the wiring and everything was falling apart. Bits were falling off the roof. Princess Anne nearly got dismembered by a piece of masonry falling off the roof as she walked through the courtyard. Wow, that's crazy. When did that happen? <laughs> well, a few years ago. Um, so they're spending at what the, f- the first estimate was it would cost fifty million pounds to fix this. That was the first estimate. It's now up to four hundred million pounds, and and it's still way unfinished. Charles has said that he doesn't think Buckingham Palace is a suitable royal residence any longer. It's, and in, the, in this, he's absolutely right on the ball. Um, it's it, it doesn't mean anything anymore, and it's very uncomfortable for the people who live in it. So they they once it's once it's fitted up and brought up to stand, they've got to find a use for it. My idea for using it is they've got one of the world's great art collections in Buckingham Palace, of which only a minor site, 0.1, is ever seen by the public. Why not turn Buckingham Palace into the British equivalent of the Louvre? Yeah. Make it into a great gallery. And it would have a theme, which the theme would be how royal patronage has built up these in, these wonderful art collections. The gardens are wonderful. They're the largest private gardens in the centre of London. They should be open to the public. The whole thing then would be symbolic. That's a wonderful yeah. idea. And we've that. seen, we've read some of that too, where Charles has some of those intentions, maybe not for Buckingham Palace, but opening up more of the historic palaces to the public, which would be really impactful. Yeah, it needs yeah. a really bold move like that, yeah. something dramatic like that. I was curious, because you even just said you witnessed the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. What are you hoping to see from the coronation of King Charles? Any any sort of predictions or expectations that you have? Um, it's not going to be a white Anglican ritual like the first one. It's going to be much more ecumenical, because Charles has never really liked the high Anglican church anyway. He much more favours um, spiritual and mystical stuff like Hindu or or um, Buddhist religions that are about meditation and are not about that that I think Charles always saw the Church of England as an arm of British power, like the church was a powerful thing and he wasn't comfortable with that. He said himself that he was much more comfortable moving among other religions and learning about other more spiritual religions. So that will definitely be a note at the coronation. You'll you'll see that very clearly. Well, he went head to head with the church, right, over his marriage to Camilla, I think, and marrying a divorced woman. I think that's probably plays into his not being so fond of the higher ups there. Yeah, well, there were two two encounters that are critical there. One was that when he was being before he married Diana, and the Archbishop then, Archbishop of Canterbury then had to teach him about the church and the role of the church. And the Archbishop came away. His name was Runcie, Archbishop Runcie. He came away nodding his head and saying. Charles really doesn't believe in the Anglican Church. His, his head is somewhere else. And, and that was true then. And then, of course, the whole Camilla thing put the Archbishop of Canterbury in a position of being a Victorian moralist. And, and that that jarred too. So I think that you can see if, if that's one of the differences in this coronation. It's not going to have that religious tone to it. 
Yeah. Do you think we'll see the Sussexes participating? Do you think we'll see a lot of similarities to the Jubilee? What are your expectations? Well, the Jubilee comparisons are there because this is what I think is really crazy is that they, they've got this thing called the big lunch, which is to, it, it's a it's a survival of what happened at the end of World War II when everybody had street parties and celebrate in 1945, celebrated the end of the war. That was, a, and I remember that was a, as a kid, the wonderful thing. And so they latched onto that idea. And every time there's a jubilee, they invite people because they don't have to do anything themselves. They just say, go out and <laughs> go out and have a good time in the street. So hang all the flags across the street and have a good time. So they pulled that trick again. And I think it's very misjudged this time because they call it the, mm. I think the big eat. The big lunch, I, that, I think, yeah. You know, I said earlier, there's something obscene about that when they're actually food bank. And then they've got this other thing, which is even, they haven't worked this out properly. They just announced it without working out, called the big help, which was to encourage people to go out and volunteer. Well, of course, anyone who's going to do that is doing it anyway, because people, people are volunteering all over the country to help each other in this situation. And there's very little the royal family can do to assist that. So that sounded like, tone deaf to me i think those two things about the coronation sound tone deaf go out in the streets and have a great party and then then go and do something useful for other people because it doesn't involve involve them or the king in doing anything and compared to the current crises it feels it might feel a little out of touch just going back to your own experience at queen elizabeth what is your most vivid memory of what of witnessing that well it was on television for the first time and it was a flickering black and white screen, very low low resolution. But the thing I took away from it was that it was so ancient and it was like going back five centuries and seeing something being done in a system where having read Shakespeare and all the Shakespeare royal plays, you wondered where the blood was going to start being spilled afterwards. Wow. wow. <laughs> it really felt like that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. So we wanted to ask, close this out with a question about Charles's reign, because you wrote once the monarchy as it exists right now needs a complete overhaul. Um, For example, a truth and reconciliation commission to address colonialism and slavery. Do you think King Charles III is up for the task? I don't think he's got that message. And in fact, I think the people around him, the courtiers who are very powerful in this situation, the people who run the machine on a daily basis, are a generation who don't believe in the concept of reparations. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think it was a big shock when William and Kate went to the Caribbean and suddenly started hearing the word reparations, which they hadn't heard before. Although they're both extremely well-educated people, their education had not included, their public education and their royal education had not included the story of their exploitation of all these countries for their how they were robbed of their natural resources and how they were held back. And, and in fact, the role of the is the key thing is that Charles II started the slavery business, really, and the slavery business in the, in the 1660s in the Caribbean. And that whole story goes from 1660 to about the turn of the 20th century of repression of people in the colonies, when the colonies, basically, they were called extraction colonies. They were used to extract the wealth, bring it back to the UK, made many fortunes in the UK. So I think this is going to be a larger and larger factor in the debate about the future of the monarchy over the next few years, plus the idea that 
particularly Australia, New Zealand and Canada. They will remain in the Commonwealth, but they don't want the monarch to be the head of state anymore. And I, I get very strong signals from my friends in Australia that Charles has accelerated that process. That they're not going to put his head on their on their banknotes, for example. They've got yeah. one banknote which has the Queen on. They're not going to put his head on the banknotes. It's fascinating. So it's all sort of a waiting game until King William is... Yeah. Well, it is. Down, you're dead right. It's a kind of... They've got a tricky thing to do because they've got to be loyal to the king and they've got to do as much as they can to soften the image of the monarchy in the way that they can and he can't. In the end, it's up to him to decide how much longer he's going to stay there. But I think at the moment he looks he's looking very, what's the right word, um, inappropriate to the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Clive, we so appreciate you taking the time. One thing that we love to ask our guests as a final kind of closing thought is if you could be one royal, living or dead, who would it be and why? Who would you identify with the most? That's a lovely question. I think um, Thomas Paine, actually, the great tutor of republics, you know, the the rights of man is an amazing thing that when Napoleon uh, captured Egypt, took over Egypt and sat in Cairo with all the previous rulers, the tribal rulers of Egypt, he gave them a copy of the rights of man. <laughs> and, and, I, and then, of course, he played a huge part in the American Revolution. And I think, that mm-hmm. in, in a way, what Thomas Paine saw is the contradiction between absolute power in a monarchy and constitutional rights for everybody. And that's what he really explained in very lucid detail. And I wish I'd love to have been alive then and seen all that going mm-hmm. on, because America is largely founded on the principles of Thomas Paine. Yeah, what a great answer. Well, thank you so much, Clive, for joining us. It's been wonderful getting to talk to you, and we'll hope to have you back on soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Clive. Before we adjourn the royal pod, here are our highs and lows. It's time for the royal highs and lows. I just have to mention this low that the woman who took Harry's virginity is coming forward. This is obviously from Spare. We know that this happened 20 years ago. Her reasoning is that she felt like she was hunted, that she was worried that paparazzi would be outside her door. But it just feels so weird to me to tell the male and the son about this. And she said he doesn't understand why Harry went into such detail about the situation, but it was four lines from Spare. Yeah, and it was nothing more than that. So I And you didn't understand. have anyone sleuthing out an identity there. Also, Rupert Everett was getting in on this. Did you see that where he was talking about? Uh, yeah. He did a very bizarre interview. It's all really weird. So Milo is more of a LOL. I'm sorry to rebrand it this week. But th- did you see this clip from Wrexham? It kind of made had a no, lot of headlines this week. But Charles is very flustered at this kind of walkabout with Camilla. And she is dragging her feet and go- I guess going slowly. And he's just very flummoxed like oh why is she taking so long everyone should look it up charles is actually salty in the video and i kind of am liking i'm making this an lol it is a low but it's just funny to me that he is kind of flummoxed in these situations yeah the pen and now camilla walking too slow i guess it's authentic yeah i mean he's he's very real He's very scheduled out as a person, it seems like. He does not like Move it along. Go. Move it along. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. My high this week is an SNL appearance. Not really, but it was a rap about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. When asked on Weekend Update with Michael Che about the 
upcoming coronation. This was a response. These are two um, pretend UK rappers, and I thought this was hilarious. All the focus is on the royals, right? When it should be on England's exploitative tabloid press, right? It's pants, mate. Pants. Rubbish, mate. Pants. Mm-hmm. Sorry, pants. Pant? It's pants, okay? Pants. It's pants. What, what is pants? It's pants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the mean to our boy area, right? We know what really goes down. We've known Harry since our days at Eaton. You guys went to Eaton? Yeah. <laughs> Eating your mom's bum. <laughs> no, but, no, but seriously, look, look. <laughs> if you want us to sum up our thoughts, take out the pods and hear me, all right? Because we have a way of talking back in the end. Hey, <laughs> shirty. Millie Pounds? Yeah. Prince Harry, Prince Harry, stayed over at Tyler Perry's. Press cold like Brandon Jerry's. I'm allergic to dairy. Harry and Meghan, Ronald Reagan, interracial dating. Queen said not today, Satan. They see us coming right. I slide down the block like, your girl saw me and I. Man's like me got a million suitors because I stay hot like young It's ridiculous, but I love hearing royal shout outs in random places. And I was watching for Pedro Pascal, who was hosting. Oh. So good. Did you also see that Harry was supposed to host SNL as part of the spare <gasps> rush? That it if, broke down in the 11th hour and oh. so that didn't happen. But he was very, very on board to do it. There was a lot of news headlines about that today. Oh, my gosh. Love it. What's your high? So my high is just the scoop on scoop. We finally know the casting news that Gillian Anderson is going to play Emily Matlas. Rufus Sewell, we told you we'd take you the, back to the holiday here. He's going to play Prince mm, Andrew. Got Billy it. Piper is going to play Sam McAllister, who came on the pod, obviously, way back in September. But I just, yeah, I am excited. I cannot wait. I'm also like the is going to be like rewatching a train wreck, I guess. Jillian Anderson, I mean, and Rufus Sewell, like they're both so incredible. So that is so exciting. Uh, all right. Just a reminder before we close, leave us a royal rating. Here is five star rating. It says, love this podcast. I never miss an episode. Rachel and Roberta are always interesting, informative, thoughtful, and just plain fun. And I love this part. The person added, I would love it to be more often. Twice a week would be fabulous. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, if only, if only we could squeeze in twice a week. Remember to subscribe to our podcast. You never miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram. You can send us an email, info at gallerypodcast.com. And till next week, God God save save the pod. Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast. And join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a Gallery Podcast production.